So we're going to take some time in the Word of God. And uh, as some of you know, but I'll bring everyone up to speed here, in our second week of the book of Ephesians, we had, uh, we're going to go a little different direction this fall. And with the things that happened with COVID and with uh, George Floyd, really felt like the book of Ephesians, a short series for a few weeks here, really gives us an understanding of how to look at these things and what God is doing. There was an act, of course, of injustice. Uh, the killing of George Floyd, the nation exploded. There was protest, legitimate protest, but then there was violence, horrifying and frightening. And then, of course, Kenosha, the aftermath there. People's response was very, very different, right? Some say, oh, just, just, just pray it, quiet down. Others are like, see, the whole system's evil, let's burn it down. Some want to pray for peace so they can go back to their private life of peace and prosperity. Others want to tear the whole society apart, including the nuclear family. So how do we discern what to do? So before we jump into what you might consider an ordinary sermon, we're going to take about seven minutes and give you some theology to understand the forces at work. So let me start with an illustration from the physical realm, and then we'll do some theology. So in the physical realm, thousands of bits of information are hitting you constantly, right? You're hearing things, you're, you're seeing things. It's all kinds of information. But because your brain has an organized view of the world, you can filter the inconsequential and focus on the important. Right? You're able to, you know, you're not just overwhelmed and you know, laying on the ground going, oh, I just saw this information, what do I do? Right? You, no, no, I understand that you know, the background noise is a little bit annoying, but that's okay. I know the Simon took care of it anyway, so that's great. But you know, all these, okay, now I tend to the worship leader. And you're, you're able to filter so that you can interpret reality and understand what is significant, right? So in the world of ideas, how do we know what is crucial? Well, we need a biblically grounded worldview, and all the Bible is important for this, so read all of it, but Paul's letters specifically are written with worldview transformation in mind. Even when he's answering specific questions, if you watch carefully what he's doing, he's always reframing the question to shape your worldview. That's how Paul does influence. So especially... With Ephesians, the, the letter to the Ephesians, those six short chapters, may possibly, I think in my opinion, be the biggest picture zooming out of what God does of all the books in the Bible. That's why we're looking at it. So last week we said in Ephesians 1 that God is reconciling all things in Christ. Things in heaven and on earth, a complete reconciliation of, cre uh, of creation through the church, and the church fills all things in every way as the body of Christ, as the physical expression of Christ. So we see not only evangelism, but mercy ministry, reconciliation, right? The church is filling the earth with the manifestation of the kingdom. And those who refuse that will be placed under his feet. So now, in the next couple minutes, I want you to think very carefully and don't 
we're going to try to bring together the, world, the words you hear from the secular world and the words you read in the Bible and, and understand where they overlap, right? What they're addressing, right? So we're going to think carefully. And if you're a note taker, maybe take some notes because it's something you should talk about with each other. So the theology, well, let's read chapter two, verses one to five. Ephesians chapter two, one to five. And I'm going to suggest you get a theology of evil, all right? He starts out using the word you, which is Gentiles, and he'll say us, which is Jews, but he lumps us all together. Verse 1, he said, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you at one time walked in accordance with the age of this world, and in accordance with the ruler of the domain of the air, that is, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we also lived in the lusts of our flesh by doing the will of the flesh and the thoughts. And we were by nature objects of wrath, as were also the rest. But because he is rich in mercy, on account of the great love with which he loved us, and when we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive in Christ, that is, you are and remain saved by grace. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask in Jesus' name you'd open our souls, our minds, our hearts to really grasp what's going on in these verses, to understand your word, and to have a solid understanding of what you're doing in the world today that we can participate wisely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, some theology. What's the problem with the world from the biblical perspective? What's the source of conflict? So in society today, you'll hear people say, well, it's the, it's the societal structures are the source of evil. Some will say it's your DNA, right? Your programming in your soul. Some will say it's your socioeconomic background. Those of you that are in education or psychology have heard nature versus nurture arguments, right? Structural evil versus personal evil. So Paul says in his theology of evil, verse 5 of chapter 2, that we are dead in sin. You're so used to hearing that, I want to make it vivid. We're dead in sin. We're not good people needing information, but dead people that need life. I remember when I took uh, some legally required classes to be a secondary education teacher at the University of Minnesota, that there was uh, one class, I don't remember the name of it, and it was a series of movies uh, that we, they were attempting to make sure that you would not be racially prejudiced. Okay, that's a good goal. But I was really struck watching the movies as a relatively young Christian. I've been a Christian about two years or something like that, maybe three. And a three, I think. And, and I remember thinking, if I was inclined to be, have racial prejudice and I watched these movies, I would just be a better educated bigot. 
right? Now, the movies were good. I mean, it's addressing issues, and it was helpful as a Caucasian to, you know, it kind of exposed you to what other people experience. But the knowledge alone wasn't going to change me. The knowledge wasn't a bad thing, but I was just very struck as a young Christian. This would not change someone if they were determined to have certain attitudes, right? So the sources of evil, verse 2 in which at one time you walked, your transgressions and sins, in accordance with the evil age of this world, or the age of this world, the implication is the evil age of this world. In other words, the first source of evil biblically is what you might call kind of a spiritual world system or a zeitgeist, right? There's, uh, you know, pride, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, rage, gossip, factions, but this, this worldliness does include what we would call structural evil. Systemic evils, sexual exploitation, racism. Uh, a very interesting instance, I just read a, I like reading historical novels, they're really fun, and uh, this one was really disturbing uh, by uh, Sigmund Brewer, if you know who he is. Anyway, he wrote roughly about the, his grandfather. Uh, and so if you know the story, those of you that are interested in Muslim ministry know this story. Uh, the Dutch Calvinists for 300 years controlled Indonesia and made millions of dollars off of it and basically kept the natives as the second-class citizens. So when the Japanese army invaded in the Second World War, there were smiles on the faces of the Indonesians because the Japanese said, you know, we'll let you, we'll let you take over the country. Right? The systemic evil of how the Dutch handled and exploited Indonesia resulted in you know, some terrible suffering all around because that was a, you know, and these were good, a lot of them were Christians, but there was a blindness in their worldview, right? Dutch Calvinists, not always say it, but you know what I'm saying, by God's predestination, if you're Dutch Calvinist, you know, you've got to be saved. Anyway, all right, bad joke, good. Yeah, all right, so, that, you know, I think many of them were sincere believers, but they had a system, a way of looking at things, more familiar to us perhaps in South Africa, that, that allowed them to live out an injustice that was a part of the world's system. You see? The world, the ideas in the world are a part of an evil that we face. Then also in verse 2, in accordance with the ruler of the domain of the air, that's of course the devil. And he says, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. So this evil age, the now age that we live in before Jesus comes again, is in accord with, it's dominated by Satan, who works, he says, in the, literally in the sons of disobedience. It doesn't mean, you know, genetically talking about it. those who live in, in disobedience, Satan is working in them. So that when you disobey you are helping Satan's system work. You're contributing, even as a believer. Even those with a biblical worldview find that Satan works through disobedience, causes slavery, darkening of the heart, despair, spiritual deception, right? And then in verse 3, he goes on to that. So there's two domains now we've got, right? Sources of evil, the world system, and then overlapping but distinct is there is a personal uh, evil moral agent known as the devil or Satan, right? 
And I remember when C.S. Lewis, if you read Mere Christianity, you know this, but he said, you know, people said, you mean like a guy in a red suit and horns and a tail? He says, well, I'm not picky about how, what he looks like, but yeah, there's a personal devil, believe me. You know, I tell you what, if you wonder where there's a devil, spend about three days trying to be obedient. You're going to discover <laughs> that there's a tempter in the world, right? You're going to run into that. Anyway, okay, so, but then that's the, sec- the third source of evil then. Verse three, now he shifts to Jews, but he's linking it all together. We, he says, we, him, Jew, <laughs> among whom we also lived in the lusts of our flesh, so now we have a third locus or source of evil, the flesh. It's an interesting choice of words, and it's an interesting choice of translation. Sarks in Greek, similar to uh, English, has kind of an implication of, you know, meat, right? That part. Uh, but it's, then he goes on to explain, lest we misunderstand, we lived in the lusts of our flesh by doing the will of the flesh and of the thoughts, so consistently, Paul, when talks about the flesh as the sinful nature inside of humanity, talks about not only bodily-based temptations, food, substances, sexuality, but also the thoughts, things like envy, strife, wrath, cheating, both are equally the flesh. And as I've said before, fleshly desires, the devil is not a creator, so fleshly desires are God-given desires twisted in some way. Right? There's a good impulse behind every temptation, right? There is uh, a selfish ambition is evil, but a desire to make a difference in the world is good. A sexual lust to exploit someone is evil, but a desire for union is ultimately a God-given desire. You see that? So the lust of the flesh, but also envy, which is not bodily. You know, there's a desire right, to, to have and control a certain amount of goods. It's not bad, but if I envy what you have rather than content with what I have, then I'm moved into sin. See, so all these things are rooted in what is uh, a God-given desire twisted, the flesh. Okay, so now, and, and he says, well, the result is we're now objects of wrath by nature. Very interesting choice of words. He's shifted to we, the Jews, but he says they too, the religious people of their day, by nature, are objects of wrath, if that's how it works. So now we're in a place to analyze our response to evil because we have a couple things that we've learned. Last week we learned that God's goal is for everyone who will submit a complete reconciliation of not just the world, but the whole universe in Christ, ultimately, kind of implying there's, you know, who knows? Would your imagination go crazy, right? Other who knows what uh, types of beings or whatever. They're moral agents. Okay. I uh, won't get into science fiction right now. I'll, I'll move on. But all right. So, but the second thing we learned today is that evil is multifaceted, both personal and societal evil, and it inter- interpenetrates both the person and society. That is what we call biblical theology, right? We're synthesizing how this goes together so that we're not simplistic in how we approach this problem of evil, all right? Specifically then, before we jump into the sermon portion, think about this. Responses to evil that involve committing more evil have got to be refused by the Christian. Right? So to say, burn it all down, that's not going to help anybody. But my personal, you can't use evil to bring good. Jesus said, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. 
But my personal spiritual response is also crucial. God bless my uncle. I hope he knew the Lord when he died. But you know, he used to say, I don't get mad, I get even. Ooh, right? That is not what we're talking about, right? That's not Bible, right? Okay. Uh, the, uh, or arrogance. I'm superior to them anyway. Or indifference, you know, just to heck with it. If I let resentments consume my soul, then the anarchist and the hater has won by producing the same as me, in me. The devil's a nasty enemy. So both inside and outside the church, we face the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now we're ready for solutions. What is God's solution to sin? Paul gives us several solutions to solving sin. The first step to solving sin is to make dead people alive. So now we read verses four and five again. Because, but God, because he is rich in mercy, on account of the great love which, with, with which he loved us, and when we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive in Christ. That is, you are and remain saved by grace. We were objects of wrath, and God hates sin. There's no tolerance of evil here. Racism, abuse, murder, whatever it might be. But God is rich in mercy. And because he loves us, you know, isn't it interesting? It didn't say because he loves us, uh, you know, uh, he helped us live better. He says because he loved us, he made us alive. He put something new inside of us. Oh, man. See, sin is just a symptom. It's like the MRI BC was talking about earlier, right? Sin is what I do when I'm not connected to Jesus. Because I just, I'm, a, I'm hurting, I'm hungry, I'm, I have needs, and I'm, and I'm just, but I'm botching it up because I'm dead. You know, for those of you who like zombie movies, right? You know, just picture a zombie trying to get his life together, right? Clunk, clunk, clunk. Everyone's running away, right? It's crazy, right? Okay, so it's a dead person can't get their needs met, right? And so he made us alive. And then a little reminder to our Greek students here. Verse 5, that is, you are... And remain saved by grace. That's the intensive use of the perfect for the Greek students, all right? So in other words, it's a past event with continuing effect. And so it's rightly translated often in the present in English. You are saved by grace. It happened in the past. You were saved and remain saved by grace. So how does this help us? It's really, really good to remember. You may be walking with the Lord a long time, like me. But remember... You are saved, and you don't deserve it. You're saved by God's kindness. Wow. Um, I'll borrow a couple phrases from my, my mentor. Two lies are addressed. The first one lie is, I'm unlovable. God loved us and loves us when we deserve wrath. God's love pushes through our sin. It says, and because of his great love for us, he saved us. 
The second one is the one that's already been addressed this morning prophetically, that I'm unforgivable. God is rich in mercy and saves us by his grace. Do you feel unforgivable? Look at verses four and five. Because he is rich in mercy on account of the great love with which he loved us and when we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive in Christ. That is, you are and remain saved by grace. If you're trying to look for the translation, this is mine. That's why it's a little different from what's behind me. I'm just bringing out the nuance of the, the Greek. So if you're saved by grace... Surely when you struggle as a believer, he's going to help you. So the first step in solving sin is making dead people alive. There's another step to solving sin. The second step to solving sin is to make powerless people powerful. I'm going to talk real briefly. Neo-Marxism, capitalism, and Jesus, right? Neo-Marxism says you can't change the system, so burn it down. What comes up after will look better. Capitalism says try harder and you'll get what the rich have. Or if you feel like you're one of the rich, try harder and you get what I've got. Jesus says, I will empower the least. Read verses six through nine. And he raised and seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms in order that he might demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace in the coming ages by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, because you are and remain saved by grace through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one should boast. Wow. So notice the sentence structure in the whole passage of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, there's two main points. Verse 5, he made you alive. And the second main point, verse 6, he seated us with Christ. So they said two things that God did to deal with evil is he made us alive. We understand that one. And the second one's a little more obscure. He seated us in the heavenly realms. Like, uh, okay, <laughs> uh, what is that? <laughs> so let's talk about that. The heavenly realm by Paul and the Jews of his day would be understand, understood as the place where God and the heavenly powers, the spiritual powers, dwell. And so back in Ephesians 1 last week, verses 20 and 21, Christ is far above all evil powers. Okay, we expect that because he's God, right? He's way more powerful. But then chapter 2, verse 6, and you, me, right now, before heaven, are already up there with Jesus in the spiritual realm above the spiritual powers. The things that try to control, we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. We're already over the powers. So, so not only are you made alive, but you've been raised and are seated in a place of authority over the spiritual powers. He's saying you're free. In Christ. Paul will later call for godly behavior as he always does. But here is the theological base for that call. You are seated spiritually above the evil spiritual powers that once controlled you. Now, as you know, that doesn't end the battle, but he tells you that's where you are. You're free. 
When temptation assails you, declare your freedom. I'm not under this. Pride, lust, rage, despair, alcohol, prejudice, despair. Similar argument, it's worth looking at if this is a wrestling point, which it almost probably is at some point in your life. In Romans 6, Paul talks for 10 verses about who you are in Christ. And then verse 11, he says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in the parallel In the great chiasmus of Romans 5 through 8, he comes back and says the same thing, but says, do it in chapter 8, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So he tells us, count yourself dead to sin. That's your mental attitude. And then in chapter 8, he says, and do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in human strength. None of us have it on our own. So believe it, count on it. He seats us in the heavenly realm, but why? (laughs) Verse 7, in order that he might demonstrate in in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Really? Really interesting. What is life about? Paul says a big part of what life is about, Jesus touches you, he works in your life, and then in eternity, take Mary's stage for example, eternity, take Mary, and he puts her up on a little podium and says, Look what I did. And he displays the immeasurable riches of his grace. Wow. Oh, man. You know, you're like, well, what about this? What about that? And when I did this, and oh, my God. He's like, it's all going to be woven into this beautiful picture of what he's done in your life. Including that day? Yep and how he redeemed it and what he worked. Everything. Nothing is outside his grace. And aren't you glad? Okay, Natasha, thank you. Amen, yeah. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. You glad? I'm glad. I'm glad, man. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Woo! Wow, yeah. Hallelujah. The power to display the riches of his grace. If you've done any sharing of Christ, you might have an insight into this. What's a common accusation? God's just, if there's a God, I mean, he's mean. Take all all our fun. Cruel. God has designed salvation to demonstrate his kindness to the accusing spiritual powers so that truly God will be glorified for eternity. And you and I, you will know, not only for the forgiveness of past sin, but for every work of grace that has resulted in obedience in your life, you will be able to say without hypocrisy and no false modesty, Jesus did it all. And you will be an eternal 
trophy to the grace of God. You'd be more than a trophy. You know what I'm saying? He'd be an internal credit to the grace of God. You think, why has my life unfolded the way it has? Because he knew every strength he put in your life and he knew every weakness of your own choices, your family background, societal evil. He knew it all. Hallelujah. And he said, I'm going to write a story to show my goodness against that backdrop so that for the believer who surrenders even your sin ultimately redounds to the glory of God as he transforms, heals, and displays his grace. And we talked earlier prophetically about removing shame. Talk about removing shame where you can even say, Lord, where I failed, you have brought yourself glory. Hallelujah. So powerful is the grace of God. Man, it just makes me glad I'm a Christian. I'm just like, yes! <laughs> I mean, this is like so good. Oh my gosh. Oh, the Bible's good. Okay, so uh, you're, you were made alive to show his grace. You're seated above evil powers to demonstrate his grace. And you know now the verses that you know. Verses 8 and 9, right? Because you are and remain saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one should boast. Those are the verses you know. And that's right. But remember, those verses are quoted to support verses 6 and 7, which are the main point. Your deliverance from the power of evil demonstrates the grace of God in your life. Now, let's get practical. What does it mean? You're going to be tempted, probably this week, to conform to the world system. When by the grace of Jesus you say, Lord, I want to take on your attitudes and thoughts. I want to walk in kingdom humility versus pride. I want to seek the marginalized versus the popular. Live through me by your spirit. All of that demonstrates his grace. Or another example, temptation to fleshly lusts. When you say, Lord, live through me by your spirit that I could live in the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control, you're demonstrating the riches of his grace. So that I would argue that every Christian, no matter your view of the Holy Spirit, should be crying out to be filled with the Holy Spirit constantly. Whether you speak in tongues or not, you need the power of the Spirit to live a life of faith. And so you say, Lord, fill me with your spirit, your love, your joy, your peace, your gentleness, your self-control. And as we, you know, uh, one story, and I know I've told this to some before, and if you heard it before, sorry, but some are new. Okay. So uh, one of my issues uh, as a young Christian was uh, a very large record collection, and now they're retros, so you know what I'm talking about, right? The, 13, the, the black things, you know? And so it was, it was a bunch of stuff, and uh, I thought, I've got to get rid of some of these. So I picked the, the 10 most decadent and put them up for sale in my military uh, uh, dorm room. And uh, so... One guy bought one record. It was the most corrupt Jethro Tull album ever created. If you know Jethro Tull, creepy. Okay, so, and who bought it? A guy that a week later got saved. I'm like, no way. I cannot sell these albums. This is not the right way to go. So I'm just like leaving those albums alone and, you know, whatever. I mean, your view of music is not the point. The point is God was dealing with me. So, so I'm like, God speaks to me. Uh, it was Tuesday night Bible study. 
you know, I just knew in my spirit, dump the records, you know. And it was like, okay, get home Bible study, can't do it. Wednesday night church, dump the records, you know. And I'm like, yeah, uh, okay, sure. I get home, I can't do it. I mean, this is a lot of money in those days for me, you know. I was making, I don't know, two eleven an hour, something like that. Okay, so um, an album was like a, an hour and a half of labor, right? It cost three bucks, can you imagine? Okay, anyway. Thursday night, that was the charismatic prayer meeting where people had got words of knowledge. It was like wild stuff, right? God speaks to me again. Dump the records. Right. So now, now I know I can't do this. So here's what I said. It's a silly illustration, but it makes a bigger point. I said, God, I can't do it. But if you will do it through me, I give you permission. Innocent, you know, relatively naive, brand new young Christian, huge lesson. So I get home and I feel this sense of my spirit. Go ahead, look at him. So I do, I, I go through it, you know, Almond Brothers, Jethro Tull, you know, something a little more innocuous, Three Dog Night, not bad, you know, whatever, just kind of flipping through these, right? Chicago, you know, okay. And he said, do you really want these? Now for me, they were stumbling blocks, because I had to get rid of them. I'm not saying you had to get rid of all secular music, but I, I felt that. Like, no. So like I threw them like in the biggest, highest dumpster, right? So the punchline of the story is my, my friend, Craig Neary, not a believer, he says, uh, he says, hey, where'd all your albums go? There's nothing but these religious ones left, you know? I'm like, uh, well, I, uh, I threw them out. You what? <laughs> it's a whole story, you know? You threw out good Almond Brothers, right? I threw out, I threw out, Dwayne Almond was his God, right? So I threw out his God. Anyway, so we got through it. Well, what's the rest of it? Oh, the elf. Yeah, he kind of thought he was the Fonz, if you know who the Fonz was. Yeah, so he says, oh, you know, he goes on and on about how, you know, when you throw out good, you're sick. He says, you're, you know, you need to get off this Air Force Base. You are crazy. So anyway, okay, so, um, yeah, it's, all right. God lives through you. That's a silly one, right? But the more serious things, God, you say, Holy Spirit, live through me to do what I cannot do myself. So it was a good lesson early in the Christian life. There's a lot that when I face it, I can't do it. But Lord, I give you permission to live through me. Live through me. When the storm of thoughts that I really don't want, but they're still there out of habit, live through me. Right? Whether lust or anxiety, which is not exactly a sin, but you know what I'm saying? Lord, live through me. It's an infirmity. Yeah. Live through me. because we cannot live this way without the power of his grace. So this addresses two more lies, again, from my mentor. It addresses the lies, I'm unchangeable. I'll never change. That's a lie. What you are, all of us are, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, is we are people like Jacob with a limp, they cannot walk straight without the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the design of God so that we become eternally in heaven people who have learned to humbly depend on the power of God so that all that we achieve will never create pride. It's the design of God. Second lie is I'm powerless. It's very easy, you live in an evil world system, to say, I just give up. 
lot of Christians want to check out of societal evil. I just, I can't do it. It's too much. I can't do with it. The Bible says power is perfected in weakness. One illustration of this. Um, in the 1800s, late 1800s, when the Salvation Army was a very evangelical ministry at the time in England, uh, it was commonplace that, um, uh, similar today actually, that uh, in other countries, that young girls in France would be promised a job of housekeeping and they were really being trapped into sexual slavery. At great risk to the ministry and themselves, the Salvation Army set up a sting operation with the cooperation of a journalist, exposed it, and caused that societal evil to become illegal in England. It wasn't social justice or evangelism. They were heavily evangelistic, but they said, this cannot go on. They could have said, we're too weak. I'm powerless. Jesus said, the first to be last and the last first. My power is perfected in weakness, personal and social evil. The second step to solving sin then is to make powerless people powerful. One briefly, one last step in solving sin is to make barren people fruitful. I want to live until I die. Right? Ephesians 2.10. It's the punchline that we leave off. Saved by grace. Why? Because we're his craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Praise God not only for a new life and new power, but a new plan. Created for good works. Serving is work. It's hard work. But it's what makes life meaningful. I love it. You know, some, some people say, you know, oh, I'm just so, so busy. Well, some people do need to get a hold of their schedule, right? But I'm just so busy. I say, well, you know, what do you want to do? Right? Twiddle your thumbs, play video games, you know? I mean, you know right? It's like, yeah, of course you're busy. <laughs> you might need to be busy, busy with the right things, right? I understand that. Don't be over busy, right? Just spend time with the Lord, pace, all of that. Serving is hard work, but when you are doing what you're designed for, it's what makes life meaningful. You are prepared in advance. God has a plan, a preparation, and even a team, and you join in. Now, two things I want to say. First of all, for many of you, I just say, explore and step out in your calling. It's the joy of the Christian life. Serve as you're designed. God has purpose. Don't wait till everything's just right. Look for human need and, and, and find the joy of serving. Some, and I, I've, we've talked about this in, in church, um, some have done that and things have not gone well, right? You tried, it didn't turn out well. Prayerfully, make some close friends in Christ and let God restore your soul. Make sure before you serve, uh, Psalm 23 says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures where I get fed. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Don't serve out of guilt, obligation, or, you know, some kind of desperation. Let God restore your soul first. So I do say that. I mean, I think get involved. Most of us just, just jump in 
find something, it'll be good, right? You'll, just, you'll find your way, you'll get guided as you're going. But once, once in a while, I'll meet somebody and they'll say, well, I just, you know, I just feel empty. Okay, let Jesus restore your soul. Don't like go on hyperserve, right? Let him restore your soul and out of an awareness of the grace and goodness of God, because God has purpose for you. Let God restore your soul. So live for your whole life. The third step then to resolving sin is making barren people fruitful. Hallelujah. Is this what you'd expect if you were, you know, is this what you would have done if you were God? No, right? This is like so surprising. God has a plan for sinful people to make us alive. Now, here I'm preaching to the choir, but receive his life. Now, I know you've received his life, right? But I mean, like, keep receiving his life, okay? (laughs) Receive his life. And he makes powerless people powerful. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You know, the first, like, 15 years I meditated on on Romans 6, is like, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. I'm like, dead to sin, dead to sin, dead to sin. And finishing, like, wait a minute. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Oh, <laughs> There's the good part, you know. Whoa, wow, that's when the fun begins, right? Yes, Lord, you're there. You know, the most amazing thing in the universe is that God is really there, and that we can speak to Him, and more, even more importantly, He speaks to us. Hallelujah. And finally, He makes barren people fruitful. Encourage you. Walk in the works prepared in advance for you. So stand with me. What's your step today? What is God brewing in your soul? We live in crazy times, but you know what? We always live in crazy times. There's crazy boring and there's crazy exciting. Uh, These are more the crazy exciting. Let's bow our heads. I'll say it this way. Do you need a refreshment in the life that is in Jesus Christ? And a fresh filling of his spirit, fresh power. Just raise your hand and just receive. Lord, in Jesus' name, we just receive the power of your spirit, that new life in Christ. Again, we just receive and and keep ourselves in the vine, receiving the life from you, O God. Hallelujah. Fill our souls in Jesus' name. Fill our souls in Jesus' name. We cannot live this life without you, and it's certainly no fun. So, Lord, we want to to be filled with you, filled with your word, filled with your truth, filled with your spirit, that we could walk in the newness of life you designed for us, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Father, where we wrestle over uh, sins and, and things that are stumbling right now in Jesus' name. Just go ahead again. Just raise your hand and say, there's stumbling points. I need the power of God. Just let him flow in Jesus' name. Well, there's stumbling points, habits, addictions, uh, mental habits in Jesus' name. We just pray the power of God, Lord, over, over angers and lusts and anxieties. Holy Spirit, we pray you would just fall. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name where there's patterns of anger, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray you would give insight and peace. Where there are patterns of lusts, Lord, I pray that you would give your picture of fulfillment in Jesus' name. 
Father, where there are other kinds of things, anxieties that just harass and harass, we ask for the peace of Christ to flow in the inner spirit, oh God, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Lord. We love you, Lord God. Father, we're all longing for that fruit that's designed for us in Jesus' name. I pray all over this room that you would align us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You would get us in the right relationships for that fruit, oh God, that you connect us to the right people and teams, oh God, in Jesus' name. Lord, that we would find just that vision of you that our, our service would be joyful, even when it's challenging and hard, that we would just be in your will, sharing Jesus Christ, doing the good works of the gospel with our hands and our mouths, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Align us, O oh God, to be a healing in the world around us and a service to his church, your church, O oh God. Hallelujah, Lord. Fill us, Lord, and may we be part of your church filling all things in every way. Hallelujah, Lord God. Hallelujah, Lord God. Hallelujah, Lord God. Mm. Hallelujah. Just going to wait before the Lord for a moment, but there's